0: area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community powered 94.1 kpfa radio please help support area 941 at kpfa.org
1: this is the area 941 radio walensky podcast i'm richard walensky And we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. Terrence McNally, who died of complications from the coronavirus on March 24, 2020, at the age of 81, was a giant of the American theater. He received Tony Awards for his plays Love, Valor, Compassion, and Masterclass, And for best book for a musical for Kiss of the Spider Woman and Ragtime. His plays, musicals, and operas have been performed around the world. Among his other plays, Lisbon Traviata, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, The Ritz, and Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. His work, rich with humor and deft characterization, was political in nature. He never shied away and he was always willing to take a stand. I had an opportunity to speak with Terence McNally on March 18, 2004, in the offices of New Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco, which was then running the musical, A Man of No Importance, for which he had written the book. The music and lyrics were by Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, who he had previously collaborated with on Ragtime. He was in San Francisco as New Conservatory's playwright-in-residence that spring, working on a play that would eventually become Some Men, a look at gay men's lives over the course of several decades. A Man of No Importance played last September at Lincoln Center. Did you ever intend for it to transfer to Broadway, or did you know it would be just a limited run at Lincoln Center?
0: Well, we did it at Lincoln Center in a very ideal production with a wonderful director cast headed by Roger Reese. It would have been very hard to move it to Broadway because it took it took place... Uh, on a thrust stage and they really, the whole production would have had to been entirely reconceived to move it to a conventional Broadway space so we were happy with its three and a half month run at the Lincoln Center Theater which where the audience almost sits around the actors it's not quite in the round but it's uh, about 80 degrees around with audience so we were, we were happy not to move it. Also it was a, it's an intimate musical uh, does not rely on star power. And Broadway right now is is uh, not as welcoming to smaller shows without big, big names in it as uh, I would like it to be. So we were very happy to be on that stage in an ideal production.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it seems that in Broadway, the kind of shows that used to get on just aren't making it anymore. And I think you, you, say, you say in, uh, I think, your introduction to one of your plays that uh, that what's happened is that regional theater, even New York regional theater, is becoming the,
0: the place for plays to be and not Broadway. Right. Uh, Broadway is uh, not as welcoming to the new play as it was when I first moved there. But still, plays get to Broadway every year. It's, it's just great difficulty. And usually uh, they don't come to Broadway until they've been reviewed in California or... Seattle or Chicago successfully, people are very, very cautious because of the enormous amount of money it takes to put a play up on Broadway are very cautious and uh, with the economy being what it is, it's understandable, but I wish uh, that there wasn't such a lemming-like uh, attitude about, oh, it got a good review in London, let's bring it to Broadway and we, we import so many British plays and they do not return the favor, they, they're not bringing our work over in the same quantity. But, you know, it's a reality of the business and it changes. I mean, uh, this could all, 10 years from now, Broadway is flooded with new American plays, but right now it's very lean. And I admire the uh, producers who are willing to take a chance on a new play. And I uh, I think the playwrights who are, the authors of those plays are very, very lucky. My first play was done on Broadway when I was 23 years old and it was the very first play I'd ever written. I would think the odds of that happening today it didn't, the play had never been tried out. It wasn't reviewed anywhere. Uh, and my youth, I don't think that would happen in uh, the next 10 years. I think they're they're going to look around and make sure it's it's been tested in a few regional theaters first. It was called In Things That Go Bump in the Night. It was a big flop, so maybe we should have <laughs> tested it uh, around. It was my first play, and uh, it was it was a great experience for me. Uh, Terrence
1: McNally, before we talk a little about your earlier career, before we went on the air, you began telling the story of how you discovered a man of no importance. I assume that you went to Ahrens and Flaherty rather than they coming to you, or perhaps I have that wrong.
0: Well, uh, Lynn Ahrens, who writes the lyrics, and Stephen Flaherty, who writes the music, I think are incredibly talented team of uh, songwriters. And uh, when I was asked to, to uh, make a musical or work on a musical of Ragtime, they submitted five or six songs on a tape, unmarked along with several other composers, it was kind of an audition process. And I said to the producer, the only people who I think have the tone of this book are the, whoever it is, man, woman, man and woman, whatever, dog, whoever wrote tape the songs on tape three. And he opened the envelope and he said, it's by Aarons and Flaherty. And actually I had admired their work enormously. A show called Once on this Island, which had been done in New York and successfully at Playwrights Horizon, then moved to Broadway any rate, to make a long story short, we worked on Ragtime. It opened. It was very successful. I think it had a cast of 67 when it opened, or 63. I forget. It's just over 60. It's probably the last of the really big shows. We loved working together, and we wanted to do something else. But we wanted to do something small, intimate, chamber-like, the exact opposite of of Ragtime. We did not want to do an epic So we looked and talked and read. Nothing seemed right. And then one day I was uh, waiting in a video store in line to check out in Chicago. And I saw this movie, $1, you know, you can have it for three weeks. And I said, look at that cast, Albert Finney, uh, Brenda Fickett, Michael Gambon, Rufus Sewell, all these good actors. How bad can it be? I'd never heard of it. I put it on and I just was enchanted by it. I called Lynn and Steve and I said, I found I what I think should be our next project. And uh, they rushed to their video stores and found it and they didn't like it as a music. They didn't like it and they didn't see it as a musical. So I said, okay, win some, lose some. But six months later, we still hadn't found anything we wanted to work on. They were all doing other projects. Life continues. Uh, but at any rate... Stephen and said, you know, I watched that movie again, and I really think maybe there's something there. And then Lynn looked at it again. She said, yeah, me too. And they said, could you write like the first 20 pages to give us an idea how it might translate into a musical? Because it's a movie that takes place on a bus in the streets of Dublin. Film is a very realistic medium. How are we going to find the way to theatricalize this? So I wrote 20 pages or so. and. uh, they said, we got it. You know, we, we can hear music now. We, I, Lynn said, I can hear words. Stephen said, I can hear. And then the show wrote itself very, very quickly, uh, within six months. We played it for Lincoln Center and Andre Bishop, who's the artistic director there, said, we want to do this show. And that's what happened. It was a very fun show to write, quick show to write, and uh, he had a wonderful production in New York. It was never show in trouble. You know, you hear stories about musicals getting eight new songs and a whole new second act. It never went through anything like that. But the real genesis is my desire to work with Lynn and Stephen again on something smaller in scale than Ragtime, which was such an epic show. And we tell the story of uh, Man of No Importance with, I think, 13 actors. Uh, You could not begin to tell well, I'm sure there's some creative director out there who will find a way to do Ragtime one day with three people. But right now, <laughs> I was happy we had the 60-plus cast on Broadway. We'll get
1: into uh, Ragtime in, in a little bit because the, the way Ragtime departed Broadway is very sad because I think it could have run another couple of years. If not, it was still selling out, close to selling out when they closed it. But A Man of No Importance, when you've got this film, okay, we know constructing a play is one thing but there's got to be some kind of difference between constructing a play and a libretto where you know that the songs every so often will further the plot how do you go about doing that and how do you go about figuring where those songs will be or do you figure it or do they figure that
0: well every librettist works differently with uh, uh, his, his or her collaborators in this case the way I like to work, and I've, I've written musicals with uh, Lynn and Steven. I've written musicals with John Kander and Fred, Fred Ebb. And I wrote uh, The Full Monty with David Yazbek. In all of those cases, I wrote a play first called The Full Monty, a play called Kiss of the Spider Woman. And they found the songs in the scenes. Now, when you write a scene for to, to, that you're going to give to a composer and a lyricist, you kind of overwrite you leave lots of material for them to musicalize, to inspire them, for lack of a better word. Most people think book writing for a musical, libretto writing, is leaving spaces, saying he sings a song here, saying how much he loves her. That's not the way I write musicals. Maybe some people do it that way. I just read a biography of Cole Porter where uh, they would cable him in Paris saying, Merman needs another ballad for the second act, and he would write one. Those days, thank God, of, of books having no relationship to the score are over. But um, you know, So we work very closely, but first I write a scene, and usually the song comes just about where I thought it was. Sometimes uh, a line of mine will trigger a song or will trigger something exactly the opposite, but it will still trigger it. But then there's some amount of of jiggling, well, we don't need that line now, and you finesse it. But all the the, the three composers I've worked with all use my words and situations as an inspiration for their music and their lyrics. So I think the book does come first, probably in most modern collaborations. I I really don't know how another librettist uh, works, because there aren't that many of us around and we all don't hang out together anyway. So <laughs> I see them, you know, hi, how you doing? But I don't say, How do you how did you write your book? So that that's my preferred method. So there somewhere out there on a floppy disk somewhere is a play called Ragtime, a play called not a play I would want performed, right. mind you, but a, written in the format, style of of a play that I was hoping would speak to Kander and Ebb, Aaron's and Flaherty, David Yazbek.
1: And then at a certain point, they come back to you and say, this is where we want the song to be.
0: Usually, you know, within a day or so, you know, we read the scene and we think it would be great if she sang a song and using those images and stuff. I mean, sometimes there's a whole line or several lines of dialogue that are, end up in the song. You know, that doesn't mean I wrote the lyrics. It means the lyricist used my my words to launch a song or get into Ebb. Calls it uh, who's a lyricist with John Cander, Chicago Cabaret. He calls it cannibalizing the librettist text. And in lectures that he gives, he talks about a song in Spider Woman, and he reads the scene I wrote, and then he reads sings a song he and John Cander wrote. And it's hard to say where one begins and the other leaves off. But I take no credit for the song. Don't get me wrong. But I'm I'm happy I provided the the fodder for it.
1: On something like uh, Kiss of the Spider-Woman, did you go back to the original novel or did you work off the uh, off the movie?
0: Or? No. Uh, in the case of uh, Spider-Woman, I saw the movie again. I, re- I tried to read the novel. I found it very heavy going and we sort of made our own version of it because every version of the story is quite different in terms of the story being told and who Aurora is and so... Uh, Puig was very pleased. Uh, as one of the last, just before he died, he saw Spider Woman. He was very happy with what we'd done, but it was quite a departure from his. But still, it, I think it respected the themes of his book, which you know is freedom and uh, depression and uh, how we all have to dream because reality can be incredibly painful, especially if you're in prison being tortured as a political prisoner. I read
1: actually, I think it was today on Broadway.com, a line from uh, Ken Mandelbaum, where he said that um, the character of Aurora in the
0: musical was written specifically for Cheetah Rivera. Is that true? No. She was uh, certainly always a candidate for the role, but when we first did the show, she did not create the role in the very first production. And I can't tell you the name of the woman who did. (laughs) But after we did that version, we realized we needed an older, we needed someone with a real persona. So John and Fred, you could say, I'll write everything for either Liza Minnelli or Cheetah Rivera. But we did not think she was going to be doing the show, and she did. I I was lucky. She went on tour.
1: And while Vanessa Williams was in New York, she was out here, and I managed Mm -hmm. to see her. She was amazing.
0: Cheetah lifting her leg today is still more exciting to me than uh, someone half her age doing somersaults. I mean, she's got the authority and she's, you know, worked with every great choreographer of the Broadway theater, the second part of the last century from Jerry Robbins to Michael Bennett, to Gower Champion, to Bob Fosse. I mean, she's, she's the end of an era when Cheetah hangs up her shoes. That really will be the end of half a century of musical theater. I mean, she did, West Side Story. I think she was still a teenager. I think she was nineteen or twenty when she did Anita in West Side Story. She never did a film version of any of her work, no. other than you no. know that little brief moment in Chicago. Yeah, and now she's in uh, she's in uh, the movie of Sweet Charity. She oh, that's right. Yeah, plays one of the, the you know. There's got to be something better than this. The two friends of the heroine, but you know that tradition of uh, leading ladies not getting the uh, part in Hollywood goes back to Merman and Mary Martin. All it happened to all of them. Rosalind. Russell got the movie of Gypsy, uh, you know. Terence McNally, when the
1: first version is done, when you guys, when they they went, they worked on it. Is there a certain point where you kind of go, let's see how an audience responds, and you just put it on, expecting it to fail, or is there? Does that happen at the read-through where you know you're going to be making the changes? What's that process like?
0: Well, in today's theater, with the costs being so high. And also, shows used to travel out of town to get it right before they brought it to Broadway. When I first started working in the theater, you'd see a little story in the New York Times. West Side Story postpones opening six weeks. Fiddler on the Roof delays Broadway opening eight weeks. The the Internet did not exist, so all these people were saying, oh, I hear Fiddler's a disaster. West Side Story's the biggest bomb. It was just something you did to get your show right. One of the reasons the road collapsed is because... Modern productions are so big. You can't take, it takes three or four weeks to get the set up on the stage and the everything to work. The old shows, My Fair Lady and those shows, a lot of it was on, you know, canvas up and down. You could hang the show. And My Fair Lady originally went to uh, New, New Haven for four performances, closed on a Saturday night and opened on Boston on Tuesday. And in today's world... The set of Full money took uh, two weeks to put up, so, and that was, quote, an, a small show. So the, the road died, and now people do workshops, readings to get a response to the audience, but no one puts a show on for an audience thinking, oh, this isn't very good. It's the best we can make it, and then the audience, it still doesn't work for an audience, and that's when we start doing revisions. Well, I keep wondering when you hear something like uh,
1: what happened with Sondheim's Bounce, Mm-hmm. Uh, in its earliest wise guys. They do a a reading of it, and suddenly the word filters, everyone hated it, even before they do the reading. I mean, wouldn't, say, Sondheim and Weidman or Lapine or whoever was involved with it, wouldn't they have some idea that something didn't work?
0: Or would they have to have those people do it at that point? That's a very complicated question. Uh, sometimes shows are, by contract, just... The ball has been set in motion and there's no no turning back. Uh, a show by Stephen Sondheim probably gets announced and the Kennedy Center says, oh, we'll do it for eight weeks. And the Goodman Theater said, we'll do it for six weeks. And no matter how badly the workshop may have gone, I'm sure everyone felt, gee, that's 14 weeks of performance, rehearsal time. Maybe we can fix it. Um, no one willingly goes ahead and has a bad experience in the theater, It's a mystery, what turns out. There's famous stories of shows that did not work that with the addition of one song. I've had that experience in my life, uh, a play of mine I wrote called The Ritz, and it just lay there, and someone said to me, you know what's wrong? There's two things wrong. I said, what? Tell me. They said there's no setup for the play, and they don't know where they are for, for 40 minutes. I went in the lobby and wrote a prologue to the play in 10 minutes. It probably took three minutes to perform made a huge difference. And also someone said, you're also trying to get laughs in front of a battleship gray set. It's such a depressing color. Warm it up. And the producer spent a lot of money keeping people in the theater overnight, painted the set a very warm red or not red, the color of sardis, maroon sort of. And uh, the next night without changing one line, I suddenly turned into Neil Simon, it felt like. The laughs that had never been there were suddenly there and suddenly the play looked inviting and warm as opposed to this harsh, very, very foreboding. uh, I would never have thought of that. I thought my job was to just write funny lines. It's also someone's job in the theater to have an eye says that color, that big three-story set battleship gray is oppressive. It does not make you want to get in, be in that room, be in that space with those people. So... The theater, you know, as they say in Shakespeare and Love, is somehow it all turns out. Somehow it yeah. always doesn't. <laughs> we try our best to make it turn out.
1: I talked to Michael Frayn, and he said one of the artist's things about watching noises off is that depending upon the direction, it could be the funniest play on the planet with everybody roaring.
0: He said he's been to some performances where no one laughed at all. Same play. That's a farce, and as the Ritz was a farce, and nothing is harder to get right than a farce that has to be played. With impeccable timing and total seriousness. And once actors smell a laugh, they start doing it to be even funnier if they're funny. And you've got to keep saying no. It's because you think you're in the most miserable position in your entire life. That's why the audience is laughing. If they think you're trying to make us laugh, the laughs will go. And Oh, I can imagine uh, Noises Off being uh, the last revival on Broadway had a quarter of the laughs of the original. And, you know, people were enjoying it. And I was thinking, boy, if they'd seen it 20 years ago with Dorothy Loudon and that cast, they would have uh, laughed much louder and much longer, too. Your early plays didn't really have gay content. Some
1: had, some hadn't. Uh, you would had kind of stayed away from it, or am I wrong?
0: You're wrong. My very first play that we were talking about earlier that was done on Broadway and things would go bump in the night. Had very strong homosexual gay content in it. Before uh, Lips Together... The Ritz was on Broadway. That's all it had was gay gay guys. And all the characters were gay. This was years before boys in the band, uh, normal heart, uh, straight audiences, Broadway audiences were laughing at a sexual farce about gay men in a bathhouse. So I've written many gay, but Lisbon Traviato is quite a few years before Love, Valor, Compassion. And then, you know, the current play I have on in New York, The Stendhal Syndrome, does not have a gay theme. Master Class doesn't have a gay theme. Man of No Importance is about a man coming out in Dublin in, in the late 50s in a very oppressive, tight, uptight little Catholic uh, parish. So it's been in and out of my work, uh, but I, I, I certainly don't write exclusively about gay subjects. I am a gay, gay man, but I didn't feel I was suddenly tackling a theme
1: truth is that i've had less than 24 hours i went online there are some plays i know there are right. some i don't I'll, i can't I'll i mean when that. i when i have lists of your plays i don't see all the plays there right. and i can only look at what i've got
0: i've been know. doing this uh i've been doing this since i was 23 years old i'm 65 so for 42 years i've written quite a few plays and i you know people can still you even one you mentioned to me you said what's this play ghost light i'd sort of forgotten it <laughs> it's <just> a, <laughs> Play I wrote that Angela Lansbury did, you know, two performances of. It was a fundraiser uh, for a theater fund. Uh, Tickets were very expensive, and it was probably the last time Angela Lansbury's been on stage. It was just last September. But I'd sort of forgotten it because it's not a significant. There are
1: certain significant plays in your overall work. Uh, One of them is certainly Lisbon Traviata for me because, to me, that exposed me to Nathan Lane, who was an extraordinary uh in act one i don't believe he may appear for a minute or two in act two i'm not sure
0: he's in act two briefly or a little more than a minute but you no know, it's a minor and, and some people had bothered that they wanted the whole play about him but it wasn't
1: but that play and master class are both about maria Callas, one second hand and one first hand mm-hmm. what
0: drew you to her her voice when i was very young i heard her voice Coming from Mexico City, I, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, the Monterey, Mexico radio station could be picked up by our FM radio, or maybe it was AM, in Corpus Christi, and I was already an opera fan. And one day I just heard this performance of uh, Rigoletto with a soprano called Maria Menihini Callas, they call her, because she sang under the name Maria Menigini Callas in those days, her husband's name. But the mexicans spanish pronunciation is Menihini caius and i just thought her voice was extraordinarily beautiful then like a week later she was singing lucia de la and another week she sang uh, puritani and uh, i heard two or three broadcasts and then a year or two later i saw her name you know on these records from italy chetra album chetra label and uh but it was her voice i had no idea what she looked like but i i really was in on for uh, North America in on Collis as early as you possibly could be because she sang in Mexico, I think, before she'd sung in any of the major European theaters and certainly before Chicago had her. San Francisco never had her here. She was famously fired here. uh, She was at the Met. Uh, The interesting thing about her is that no one liked her when she was actually singing opera, but now everyone loves her and she's revered as the greatest soprano of the 20th century, but she... Was booed at every single performance she gave at the Met.
1: One of the uh, the, the funniest parts of uh, *Lisbon Traviata* is the discussion, the war between uh, tobaldi and and Callas. Yeah. And even though Terence McNally is certainly not the characters,
0: uh, did you participate at all in that war? Yes. Oh, we Callas fans were very, uh, very prescribed in our taste. There was Maria, and only Maria. Now I must say but it's what 40 years later practically I can listen to Tibaldi and Sutherland and say these are pretty good voices here uh, I still don't respond to their musicianship or the the sense uh the detail they bring to the words to uh dramatic involvement I suppose is what I'm trying to say but in those days I just uh, but the difference was Collis fans never went to Tibaldi performances in booter. We stayed home. Tibaldi fans and Milanoff fans came to Collis performances, and they were very hard to get tickets, so you resented them for getting tickets ahead of you, and then they brought radishes and cabbages to throw at her. So they were taking up my seat to boo my my soprano, so that made me really angry at them. Now you look back and say, God, in one week you could hear Tosca sung by Maria Collis, Renata Tibaldi, and Zinka Milanoff. Who wouldn't want those days back?
1: Were you, uh, when you were writing Lisbon Traviata, were you just sitting there going, I got this one, I got this one, I got this one?
0: Well, that play, you know, the character of Mendy came pretty easily, you know. Yeah, I, that play also is, you know, the damage art can play when it becomes a substitute for real life, which I think uh, these these people in the play, Maria Collis is finally just a voice of fantasy, and, uh, and their own lives are pretty messy. The production we did here in in San Francisco was actually superior to the one in New York. Nathan Lane had created the role of Mendy, and uh, we also this time had Richard Rodgers, Richard Richard Thomas uh, in the play, and he was quite extraordinary, and uh, we did it at the Marines Theater. It was a wonderful time, the first time I'd ever really spent time in San Francisco. The apartment house was straight up that hill from the theater, and I remember Nathan and I walking up that sometimes, and... Nathan is not a sylph, (laughs) and I think it was a harder climb on him than me, even though he's younger than me, but uh, we made it up. It was a great time. Did you expect at that
1: point, did either you or Nathan have any idea about the success that he would have? Was that some kind of weird either fear or fantasy, or did you kind of know that the
0: trajectory was moving that way? Oh, clearly knew that, yeah. Nathan I saw in the first play did New York, and I just thought he was the funniest actor and just a natural stage star and uh, then when I wrote Lisbon Traviata and he did it and uh, uh, I mean we have did five or six plays together and you know he was to me he was a star then he's a bigger star I mean you know he was a star to, to the New York theater audience when he did Lisbon Traviata or Love, Valor, Compassion or any of the other. We He also did uh, my play uh, Lips Together, Teeth Apart. He was extraordinary in all of them so he was a theater star but then Mike Nichols came along and put him in the Birdcage. That made him a film star, and now there's this phenomena called uh, uh, the producers.
1: So, why wasn't he in the film of Love, Valor, Compassion? All the rest of the car- of the
0: actors yeah. were. Well, we we had a falling out over that. Uh, honestly, uh, I think the real story was that the people who were producing the Birdcage uh, was a huge multi-million dollar film. Mike Nichols, Robin Williams, did not want Nathan to be in a lower, bu- low-budget, frankly, gay-themed movie opening before theirs, and I think they talked him out of it. It turned out very well, the movie, and I'm happy with it, but I'm sure I miss Nathan, too. One of the people in that movie,
1: Justin Kirk, yeah. excellent actor, just spectacular in Angels in America.
0: Mm-hmm. And Patrick Wilson, who was spectacular in The Full Monty, equally spectacular in, in uh, Angels in America. So... There's very few actors I have not worked with that I, you know, would like give anything to work with. You know, Meryl Streep is probably the only actress I can think of that I'd like to hear her do my words or, you know, be in a rehearsal room with her. And one of those fantasies just came true just a year ago uh, with Angela Lansbury doing a play. It was a short piece. It was 20 minutes, but there was Angela Lansbury on a Broadway stage creating something I'd written. It was pretty exciting.
1: Terence McNally, your most controversial work is Corpus Christi, which I, uh, I picked up and read this afternoon, bears a certain resonance right now, uh, first off because of the Mel Gibson Passion movie, which treats the entire Christ story in a more, let's say, violent way. <laughs> and the second, of course, is gay marriage, because uh, there's, there's a scene in there involving a gay marriage. When you were writing it, did you expect incredible controversy? Did you expect the, the, did you think Manhattan Theater Club would would even cancel the play? I mean, they were forced to put it back on.
0: This is a very strange story, Corpus Christi. One, maybe I was naive. I wrote this play thinking, so I've written a play imagining the life of Christ and the apostles as told by gay men and that they were gay. Certainly, there have been plays written where Christ is a woman or Christ is a, Person of color, blah, blah, blah. So I write the play, not expecting a controversy. Then one day I pick up the paper and it says, Terence McNally's new play has Christ and the Apostles nude in most of the play performing lots of onstage sex. Well, that was never true, so the controversy was based on a false apprehension of the play. So I don't know what you know the controversy. To me, the play is not controversial. Now, a play in which men having onstage sex will get you closed in uh, San Francisco even, I would think, even at this theater. You don't have to be Christ, just two men going at it sexually with erections and all that are going to get you in trouble. So people read what, a lie about the play. So it was very hard to... No one ever read the play. That's the trouble with these controversies. People do not read the play they don't read the book they don't see the film they have opinions i have opinions about mel gibson's movie why i don't want to see it it sounds one too violent i hate his homophobia and i don't want to spend ten dollars of my money that'll just read how much money he's going to make from this movie so but i haven't seen the film well my opinion is i don't want to see it that's different than saying he should be killed as I was, my life was threatened many times and I still have a fatwa against me or that a theater should not be allowed to show his movie that's a big difference but I choose not to see it so the quote controversy if it was really about the play it would be a very different thing but no one ever saw the play they saw an event I saw it in Chicago where they're a huge Catholic city no one started all this nonsense the play was the first time I really saw the play and enjoyed it as a member of the audience, as opposed to going through metal detectors and crossing picket lines, which I had to do every night in New York. This spring, the play was done in Cincinnati with as much brouhaha as it it had seen in New York. There were bomb threats, death threats. You know, the theater had a terrible time. And, you know, a small theater doing these plays, it, it, it pushes their resources beyond the breaking point. They just can't deal with all this, you know. We're not a big Hollywood film. You can spin control and micro, you know, manage everything. And it has discouraged a lot of theaters, I think, from doing the play when they read all the brouhaha these little theaters go through. And Manhattan Theater Club is not that small a theater, but uh, they were very badly shaken up by this experience. It's very, very, very hard to put on a new play. You don't need death threats and bomb threats to add to the general merriment. <laughs> Reading the play, it did not— Are you shocked by it? No, no. of course not. But if, it, if, if the apostles were giving one another blowjobs, I think you might say, hmm, this is in dubious taste, or I could see a Catholic sure. being upset but by this. Not it but it's not—no, but that's—you see, and the, this person who started the uh, controversy is a Catholic— His father got Mae West arrested when she did her play Sex. There's a famous picture of Mae West and the cast in jail taken in 1926 for their play Sex. He called the Archdiocese of New York and asked for a comment about a play in which... Christ and the Apostles had on stage six. What is the Catholic Church going to say? Sounds interesting to us. We <laughs> welcome this new look at uh, Jesus Christ. And of course they were appalled and said, this is terrible and appalling. So, And suddenly you got a hornet's nest. Everybody's acting like a maniac. And no one's saying, hey, let's read the play. <laughs> it doesn't have this in it. And then, of course, when the play opens, the same asshole who caused me all this trouble... and whose grandfather caused Mae West trouble, he writes in his column, well, I've seen the play, and because of my pressures I've put on the play, all the nudity and all the onstage sex has been taken out. And he said, and I have this from an anonymous cast member who spoke, a condition of anonymity, which is something else that's happened in my lifetime. Papers now run, they run anything they want, and they say an anonymous person said. And I grew up When you had to say Bill Smith, give his address practically, said he heard, he saw Monica Lewinsky, you know, (laughs) on her knees. And now we can just have hearsay, even in the New York Times, and it's appalling.
1: Terrence McNally, I I mentioned before the death of the show Ragtime on Broadway. It only ran two years, but it was still doing 85, 90 percent at the Ford Center And uh, Garth Drabinski, the entire Live and Story came out and they folded it. And that was my understanding that the show probably
0: shouldn't have folded,
1: or was the nut just too high on a weekly basis?
0: Uh, The nut on Ragtime was incredibly high. Once you have things in place on Broadway, which are heavily unionized places, Broadway theaters, it's very hard to scale down. Uh, Disney tried it with be successfully. Uh, They closed down for a while. They moved to a new theater. But there's certain effects in Ragtime that cost so much that were not necessary, but Garth wanted. He finally was not a fiscally responsible producer. Uh, They certainly don't consult the authors on. And I think some of the salaries the cast was earning, in retrospect, were a little high considering who they were at that stage in their careers. But that was Garth. And he was a showman. He created glamour and excitement. But when he got into trouble for with what he was doing with the funds, that empire collapsed very quickly. And, uh you no know, Ragtime uh, had to sell out every seat at full price. And most shows running on Broadway now in their fifth and sixth years are on heavily discounted tickets. And they've kept their nut way, way down. And the nut on Ragtime was so high, it you couldn't even... If you started discounting the tickets, then it still would have lost money. So... It was a grand and glorious trip while it lasted, but uh, ragtime is being done so much more than uh, I ever thought it would. Uh, It's even high school kids are doing it. uh, Colleges. I just saw a production of it at NYU by the second-year class drama school, and there was probably sixty of them again singing their hearts out. I think that's going to become a classic, and that's one show I think will probably get a a real revival in my lifetime. And there's other ways of doing it. They did it in London. and got great reviews, heavily scaled down from Broadway. a cast of about 35, and it still had its power, I thought. Gorgeous score. It all works together. It's and thanks, that opening. Wow. And thanks to uh, Edgar Doctorow. It's a great story and an important story. Very moving. And I don't know how you can remain indifferent to the story Ragtime tells, because it really is about how America became America. And I think it exposes all that's wrong in our society, too. Uh, Problems we still have to deal with. Uh, It's it's a thoughtful musical. It's very entertaining. It's very powerful and moving, but it leaves you thinking, too. You're you're here in San Francisco
1: working on a play that will eventually be produced in 2005, correct? Mm -hmm. For actors
0: at this theater. It doesn't have a title yet, but that's quite a bit off, it seems. I, I mean you know this september would seem maybe too soon but september 5 seems awfully far away <laughs> it'll be there before you know it
1: terence mcnally looking over all of your work i notice that you never veer totally completely from the political there's always an element of that and i think there must be some underlying feeling about the nature of theatre that takes you in that direction
0: i think theatre because it's live it's brings people together and I think when audiences sit in a room and have an experience with actors on a stage, the possibility of transformation, I feel one way going in, I feel this way coming out is much more possible than it is in almost any other media and I just think theater has that special power of being in a room together, it's communal. I've only wanted to ever really write about American society. Uh, Actually, Men of No Importance, it's probably one of the few pieces I've written that isn't contemporary and takes place in Ireland, but uh, I I do think it it raises many, many issues that are still with us, but I think all engaged writing is political somehow. I mean, uh, I'm not as overtly a political writer as some of my contemporaries, but you know, uh, it's it's there. And, uh, I mean, no one said it, but when The Ritz was done, uh, an out-and-out out sex farce about gay men in a bathhouse was done on the broad- on Broadway in the 70s, I thought that was incredibly political. You know, people were laughing at gay men. They weren't being terrified of them or offended by them. And, say, they're, they can make as big a fool of themselves trying to get laid as we can. So uh, I think the writing has always had an edge, you know. I, I don't think I'm a polite writer, and I'm pretty confrontational and audiences get mad at me too sometimes it's I'm kind of in your face but that's okay uh, I think the theater should be in your face I, I don't like polite theater and I, I think a, a a
1: musical even like making a musical of an overtly political piece like Kiss of the Spider
0: Woman which is about
1: political prisoners I mean amazing
0: yes and it's about an extremely homophobic man dealing with a outrageously effeminate and uh and equally political, gay, uh, gay fellow cellmate, and uh, he's got to make his peace with him, and it's also how he's going to try to manipulate him, and uh, it's a very complex relationship. But he certainly makes a journey in his feeling about gay men uh, in the course of that story, as I, as I think the audience does too. Um, that someone as as seemingly foolish as a Molina in that story can become a man of great importance, and just as This show, what I think is so wonderful about men of no importance, someone you'd never look at twice, someone who takes your ticket when you get on a bus in Dublin, suddenly becomes this extraordinarily heroic and important person. And I I think that's, I think theater can celebrate that more than anyone else. You know, it does it better than movies. You know, Aaron Brockovich was always Julia Roberts looking gorgeous. (laughs) You know, I loved it. I thought, I'm glad she won her Oscar, but I wasn't convinced. That was Julia Roberts fighting the good fight. And I think in, on the stage here, uh, the character of Alfie Byrne really emerges in all his humanity, warts and all. And uh, I, I think it's a little more convincing, perhaps, than the, the, the kind of uh, attention Julia Roberts brings to the role of Aaron Brockovich. Terrence McNally, here
1: you are working in San Francisco, the the uh, home of, uh, of gay marriages. How do you see that issue playing out on the national scene? Or, or do you think it's almost defanged at this point where, I mean, it seems like when we went in, when Gavin Newsom first made the call, a lot of people... Except gay people were up in up in arms, even on the Democrats, afraid that it would destroy Kerry. And it turns out that more and more Americans are going, "Hey,
0: fine." Well, I think you use the right word, defanged. Uh, my partner and I, we went to Vermont last year to get married, or we, you know, honored our commitment in civil ceremony. Marriage, I guess, is not the word, but we are. We have all the rights of a married couple in the state of Vermont. At any rate, we asked people there, how, we said, how long have you been ma- marrying people? I mean, it's all euphemism, but we got married. We asked people in Vermont, how long have you been marrying people in this state? They said, oh, a year and a half now. And they said, how long was it, did people talk about it? They said, for maybe, tops, two weeks. And there were a lot of people who thought this was the end of the world, or the end of Vermont and our way of life. By the end of two weeks... No one talked about it anymore. And they said, now, the only people who ask us how we feel about gay unions are people like you who come up from New York or another state to get hitched. <laughs> because, the wall, you know, the sky did not fall down. Our way of life did not collapse. Our marriage was not undermined. So I think that's what's going to happen. I think Bush really shot himself in the foot with his amendment uh, idea, which I think is going to get major opposition. And I think, uh, you know, they're going to start marrying people in Massachusetts, which is a very sophisticated state, and, you know, that's going to go on for at least two years, and by that time, I think this will have spent itself. I I think you can no longer demonize gay people, um, and I think Bush was counting on that, and I think because of so many people have come out over the past 20 or 30 years, because of AIDS, there's a face to the gay culture now, and, you uh, Everyone knows gay people, and it doesn't mean they necessarily like them. You know, some of us are sons of bitches, but you know, we're people, and I think everyone gets that now. And you can't say those people anymore; they're people, and they want to get—they want the same rights I do when it comes to social security benefits, joint income tax. Let them have it, you know. So I—I I, I think this is something that's unstoppable. And in fact, every day you open the paper, a new state, a new county, a new city is a. Uh, starting this just shows, and it's a, it's a true grassroots movement, which is thrilling. I interviewed Peter Biskind, who wrote Down
1: and Dirty Pictures about independent film. He also wrote the definitive book about 70s film, and I asked him point blank, would there be a gay major movie star? And he said, I expected him to go, no, it's too much, take too much money, it'll, you know, nobody's going to take that chance. He said, absolutely, yes, and probably very soon, mm-hmm. uh, as this continues.
0: I think when people ask that, I, I think we can have a gay movie star. Will audiences accept a gay man or or, or a uh, lesbian in romantic heterosexual situation? I don't know yet. I don't know, you know. I don't know how I would feel if I saw Harvey Firestein making out with Julia Roberts in a movie. I don't think <laughs> I'd be too convinced. I don't think he probably wants to. <laughs> but, you know, we're all human. We go to the movies, there's some suspension of disbelief, but... I think what he really means is someone, you know, just as Gary Cooper always played, you know, heroic Westerners, and, you know, there'll be an actor or an actress who play Lesbians in all their guises and gay men in all their different manifestations, and not, and we can just have a, it, be a gay movie star playing gay roles in a great variety of them, just as you would never limit an actor. But obviously, there are roles John Wayne was wrong for. You certainly didn't want to see him doing light comedy, you know, and one of those uh, Doris Day movies that she was doing with with the gay Rock Hudson, and he would have been terrible in those. So. Terrence McNally, this brings up a question that I've always wondered
1: about. Now I've, I've finally got you here, ready to get back to your computer, but I'm going to hold you here for a second.
0: What about the idea of colorblind casting? I'm all for that. Are you? Absolutely. Uh, Frankie and Johnny has been done a lot with uh, both black, one black. One, he, he's black, she's black. I've had black characters in all of my plays. Audrey McDonald created the role of uh, the nemesis of Maria Callas in, in Masterclass. And, uh, you know, when I wrote it, I did not write it for Audra as a black role. And I think that'll happen all the time. I've even seen plays where, you know, Gertrude is black and Hamlet is white or vice versa. And you don't go, wait a minute. That's a classic play. I think it could work. And there was talk of um, of James Earl Jones playing Big Daddy in Cat on a Tin Roof. And uh, some people thought that was terrible. You know, how and a play that is so grounded in the South. and to me, that's a classic play now. A contemporary play, if the curtain went up and uh, James Earl Jones came out as somebody, a white actor's father, I would probably think the play was about about that until I realized it wasn't. You know, until we try it, we're not going to know. But up front, I mean, we certainly had colorblind casting on uh, The Stendhal Syndrome, my most recent play. You know, when a play is brand new, you don't know what it's what it's going to be yet. So maybe Frankie and Johnny, what a different play that would have been if Diana Sands, this great black actress who died quite young uh, in her late 30s, I think, had created that role as opposed to Kathy Bates. So so I'm all for it. I mean, and I think that its day has come too. I just, uh, you know, colorblind classing, that implies that theater is going to go on being healthy and young, young actors and actresses are going to want to work on the stage. And I hope that's true. Terrence
1: McNally's play, Some Men, played off-Broadway in 2007 and would return to its theater of origin, New Conservatory in San Francisco, in 2009. Over the 15 years after this interview, he would write several plays that reached Broadway, including It's Only a Play and Mothers and Sons, along with three musicals, most recently Anastasia, based on the animated film, which ran on Broadway for two years, closing in spring 2019 after 808 performances. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.